We gonna do what they say can be done We've got a long way to go And a short time to get there all right, this is the part of the program where we sometimes do obituaries, but I am not in the mood today. We may actually devote an entire segment of that to Radio Parallax Internet version, our, uh, our supplemental segments we're going to start offering, we hope. Let's instead talk about a subject we've uh, hammered on in the past to, to, to the consternation of some listeners. We have taken the position on this program and still stand by it that the way math is taught in this country, well, someone ought to be going to jail for it. And apparently um, the math follies or the continuing math follies have surfaced in this controversy over the common core, which we should talk about, and what we think is probably a partial backlash to the disastrous no child left behind uh, craziness of the Bush administration. 45 states, the District of Columbia, got together in 2010 with bipartisan support to promote some new teaching standards. It apparently has the 2014-15 deadline for testing of skills approaches. Attacks against Obamacore, as Tea Parties have nicknamed it, are becoming mainstream. This prompted Indiana, the first state to adopt the standards, to this year become the first state to opt out, even though it risks losing federal education funding by doing so. Meanwhile, 100 bills have been introduced in state legislatures to slow or block the implementation of the standards. And worried parents are in an uproar. Comedian Louis C.K. recently complained in a tweet, My kids used to love math. Now it makes them cry. In the briefing section of The Week magazine, it was noted that pre-Common Core, this country's 14,000 individual school districts developed their own curriculum autonomously, or they followed some general state guidelines. But that hodgepodge of educational standards meant that what students were taught varied widely from state to state. As a result, a student's acing algebra in Alabama could move across the border to Tennessee and flunk the same subject. Many schools were clearly not preparing their students well. About 20% of incoming freshmen at four-year colleges require remedial courses in English or math, according to the National Center for Education Statistics. That's why the National Governors Association in 2009 asked a group of academic specialists to develop a new approach, and so Common Core was born. How is it different, you ask? Well, kids are no longer asked to recall memorized facts in multiple-choice tests or write emotion-based personal essays. Instead, the focus is on analyzing complex information and reasoning, which in theory better prepares students for college and employment. As a consequence, New York City sixth graders studying Homer's Odyssey are no longer asked, when did you do something heroic? Now they're to analyze the protagonist's character and the concept of heroism. And probably some critics in the English departments are noting that uh, the core reduces how much literature teachers can teach. Because of its emphasis on analysis of information and reasoning, the core requires that 50% of all reading assignments in elementary schools consist of nonfiction texts, growing to 70% by grade 12. This has evidently sparked outrage that things like Shakespeare or Steinbeck are being dropped for informational texts like Recommended Levels of Insulation by the Environmental Protection Agency. There's also widespread frustration over the Corps' demand that students explain their mathematical computations, not just perform them. Now, in theory, it makes perfect sense to me to be able to explain your your math. After all, it is about understanding the process. If my memory serves me correctly, and it usually does, there was an exam I once took, I think it was in chemistry at UC Davis, where there were four questions and a possible 200 points. 
50 points per question, and I got two of them wrong, but still scored a 198. How could that be? Apparently, I did an arithmetic error on the very last step, making one of the numbers off, or making two of the numbers off, in fact. But the whole process was explained, showing that I knew what I was supposed to be doing. Unfortunately, as is apparently the case in math education across the board, how they're doing this here, well, I guess the devil's in the details. In fact, this conceptual approach, known as fuzzy math, has sparked a number of viral blog posts from frustrated parents uploading pictures of the often absurdly complicated math problems their kids are now asked to solve. In one such example, pupils are asked, use number bonds to help you skip count by seven by making 10 or adding to the ones, e.g. seven plus seven equals 10 plus four equals question mark. Pre-core, they might have asked the question as follows, seven plus seven equals question mark. Another problem asks students to answer two plus three equals question mark, and then, quote, write the double fact that help you solve the double plus one. The Week magazine quoted a man as saying, I have a bachelor's degree of science in electronic engineering, and even I cannot explain the common core mathematics approach. Now, this is a sad commentary because a few years ago we reported on what the, the Maliazzi brothers uh, were talking about on um, Car Talk. These are a couple of MIT-trained engineers who, seeing the high school math homework their kids were asked to solve, were absolutely baffled, <laughs> decided that they'd never seen the use for any such math and went to ask the instructors why, why they were teaching this. And, of course, it was explained that it, it helps students reason better. And it appears they're still trying to do that and still apparently screwing it up. But um, if you want to screw something up in a truly, truly offensive manner, um, well, you might get together and say, why don't we make a museum to the 9-11 disaster? And yes, they have done so in New York, and it's sparking, well, outrage at the crass commercialism present. We're going to again go to the Week magazine for its talking point section on this. They quoted Tammy Bruce from foxnews.com as noting that the D-Day beaches in Normandy, where thousands of Americans sacrificed their lives, are a sacred place. The landscape is pristine, visitors are silent and respectful. Imagine if politicians and wealthy VIPs began holding parties where the soldiers were shredded by Nazi machine guns, or if tourists milled through seaside gift shops filled with tchotchkes, charms, and t-shirts. You'd be outraged, no? Well... That's exactly what's happened at the World Trade Center site in New York, where the new 9-11 Memorial Museum opened last week. Donors celebrated the opening with a festive black tie cocktail party, even though the museum, which houses an underground repository of unidentified remains, is literally on top of a tomb. A gift shop is hawking inappropriate junk, such as charm bracelets, cheese plates, and even t-shirts for dogs. The photograph accompanying the piece shows a, a keychain with 9-11 Memorial emblazoned on it and a tiny stuffed dog wearing a doggy t-shirt in red labeled Search and Rescue. Aw, isn't that cute, the corpse-sniffing dog they brought out. Yeah, Temmie Bruce noted, you know, after all, there's no better way to commemorate a mass murder burial ground than with a coffee mug. Patricia Cohn, writing in the New York Times, said, It's easy to criticize the shop, but the money to run the museum has to come from somewhere. Unlike, say, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C., 
The 9-11 Museum receives no federal funding, so it has to pay its $63 million annual operating cost itself. Christine Flowers writing in Philly.com said, Sorry, that doesn't make the 9-11 Museum's crass commercialism any more palatable. Ground Zero is a sacred site, and there's no place for commerce in a church. I just have to say, you know, the stuffed toy dog with the search and rescue t-shirt, it, I, I, it just takes my breath away. All right, in three or four minutes we got left, let's talk about some health issues. Apparently, the, uh, the ongoing VA controversy is being resolved by um, easing Eric Shinseki out of his job as being the head of the VA. Boy, following Kathleen Sebelius out the door. Noted Michael Gerson writing in the WashingtonPost.com, President Obama, who pledged to reform the VA while running for president in 2008, rushed to assume his now familiar role of outraged bystander to the dysfunction in his own administration. Of course, I love the way Obama lets him go. He stops short of blaming Shinseki for the VA's woes and said that, uh, well, Shinseki was frustrated with the manipulation of scheduling data and delays in the medical care that didn't get reported up the chain of command, noted the president. Noted Lindsay Wise and James Rosen from the McClatchy Washington Bureau. While Obama asserted last Friday that the scheduling problems at VA were, quote, not something we were aware of, unquote, until recently, more than a decade's worth of reports from the VA's own inspector general and the Government Accountability Office identified the issue repeatedly in dozens of audits as well as in testimony before Congress. My goodness, there's gambling going on here. You know, and what's a parallel story about, uh, you know, dysfunctional um, bureaucracies and <laughs> misrepresenting things? We should report on the John Ortiz and Jim Miller piece that was in SACB.com about how our state agencies protect their budgets by transferring workers around to uh, mask vacant jobs to shield their funding, but we don't have time today. Nor do we have time to discuss that the ban has now been lifted on Medicare sex change operations. I have to quote from a piece in the Washington Post about this just briefly that noted that the blanket Medicare ban on such surgeries was, was put in place in 1981 when such surgeries were considered experimental. But now most medical groups, including the American Medical Association and American Psychological Association, consider it a safe option for those suffering from gender dysphoria, a condition that's characterized by intense discomfort or incongruence, according to the official definition, with one's birth sex. It was noted that although Medicare coverage is only for people 65 and older, and the transgender population makes up only about 0.3% of the U.S. adult population, private insurance plans often take their cues from Medicare about on what should be considered a medically necessary covered treatment. And boy, we got to talk on this program about uh, the use of injections to treat erectile dysfunction, but uh, that's not going to happen today either. Except to note that insurers just love to consider that a lifestyle issue. I just hasten to add that erectile dysfunction is not just a lifestyle issue like, you know, whether you want to take a vacation in Tahoe or San Diego. We need to end on a bit of good news. So here, there is one item we can cite here. as reported by Rob Hotekinen from the McClatchy Washington Bureau. For the first time last week, the U.S. House of Representatives voted to block the federal government from enforcing its marijuana laws in states that have approved use of the drug for medical purposes. Marijuana advocates are calling the vote historic. Curiously, uh, Republican Representative Dana Rohrbacher, who's quite, quite, quite on the right side of the uh, Republican uh, philosophy, attached the, uh, the language as an amendment to a bill that would fund the U.S. Justice Department. 
The plan passed 219 to 189 with 49 Republicans teaming up with 170 Democrats. It's noted that while Congress still officially um, backs the position of our FDA that marijuana is a drug with no medical value, 22 states now allow medical marijuana, with Minnesota the latest to approve it this week when Democratic Governor Mark Dayton signed a bill into law. Let's hope the sanity can carry the day in the Senate and this thing can get passed through both houses of Congress and get signed into law, and that the, the nuts who want to continue our current policies can be defeated. Anyway, that's it for the show. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to Michael Bonna, and we hope that we'll be bringing Mike back on the show sometime before too long. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time. Yeah.